Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about the work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Sergio. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to ask you first how you'd like to define yourself for the audience who will be first time listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? <laughs> sure. Um, well, so uh, I'm a computer science professor at UC Berkeley, and I work on uh, algorithms for machine learning and reinforcement learning with a focus on uh, embodied uh, learning systems. So these are learning systems that are uh, designed to uh, control uh, you know, robots or other machines that are situated in the world that take actions that affect the world around them and that reason about the long-term uh, consequences of their actions. And, uh, you know, to me, the, uh, the goal of studying these problems is really to give us a uh, particular lens on the, question, on, the, on the big questions in artificial intelligence, because I think that to really tackle those questions effectively, we need to be thinking about machines that are situated in the world in much the same way that, uh, that we are. So I'm going to ask you about your childhood. We ask each guest about their childhood. How, how was your childhood was that makes you motivated to do what you do? I, I don't know if you have any memories about your childhood. <laughs> um, hmm. Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know how much uh, I can say that connects this meaningfully about my childhood. It's something I could say that maybe that, that's um, in the spirit of this question is, uh, maybe a little bit later when I was in college, uh, you know, initially the thing that I um, had actually wanted to, to study and to work on as a career uh, was, not, was not artificial intelligence, it was actually uh, computer graphics. And the part of why I was interested in computer graphics uh, was, uh, you know, this is maybe not that unusual uh, for <laughs> at a particular age, I, I wanted to work on designing video games. Like this was, this was the thing that I wanted to do. And, uh, uh, you know, I was pretty good at uh, certain things, at programming, at, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, designing 3D models, art, things like that. And this was something that I uh, was very enthusiastic about. But the more, um, the more I got into it, you know, I actually did an internship at a company that made uh, uh, video games. I uh, started working on a, you know, when I started my PhD, I was working on technologies and computer graphics. The more I got into it, the more I realized that the the big questions in that area really concern themselves with simulating or emulating aspects of the real world. And one of the most complex and most difficult aspects of the real world to simulate is uh, the behavior of intelligent agents, uh, the, the, the human mind, uh, which, of course, really uh, leads into the problem of artificial, artificial intelligence much more so than the, the problems in computer graphics. So my, my, my own path towards this problem actually came at it from the standpoint of how do we simulate what happens in the real world. Mm-hmm. Great. So I guess let's give a step about, when you mentioned that question about how to simulate what we already have in, in evolution, for example, the brain. And we ask about the relation between the, the robots that design the hardware and also the side of the, the brain side. So how do you see the correlation when it comes to robotics? Do you think which parts really uh, need more focus, do you believe, uh, from the experience you have, yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, my own perspective on it is that, um, you know, if if we want to design robots that actually solve, you know, real meaningful problems that we need solved in the world, we obviously need to think about both sides of that equation, right? We need we need robots that are physically capable of doing the things we need them to do, uh, that are robot robust, reliable, safe, and also endowed with a kind of uh, you know computational. Uh, mechanisms that allow them to solve those problems. At the same time, if we think about uh, the capabilities of the of the human mind, people are remarkably good at repurposing, uh, you know, peculiar physical systems to accomplish whatever they want to accomplish. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> a cute and relatively simple example is, um, you know, there's there's this device that you can get if you're if you need to maybe clean up your lawn or something called a trash picker. It's a stick with a little gripper at the end. 
it's actually a very strange device and uh, it, it's uh, you know not at all like the human hand of course it's a little piece of plastic with a little metal gripper at the end and a little trigger um, but a person can pick this thing up and figure out how to use it uh, quite dexterously within just a few minutes so whatever um, you know, co-adaptation we have between our brains and our bodies, and you know, there must be quite a lot of it because we've, we've had our bodies for quite a long time. Uh, it seems like our minds are incredibly flexible when it comes to uh, learning how to utilize other embodiments. And what, what that tells me is that uh, the right learning-based control method ought to be able to make a lot out of whatever hardware it's provided with. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about hardware. We definitely should. It just means that uh, maybe we should think less about hardware as a tool to make control easier and more uh, as, uh, you know, whatever other constraints are placed on it, reliability, etc., and then build control algorithms that can figure out how to use whatever weird hardware we provide them with. Mm -hmm. Right. But just ask you in that case, what do you think may be the hard aspect? Or maybe something for you still you can't really understand how it works for when it comes to learning. Or maybe what's still missing, do you think... Uh, for the your work, or maybe in general, for learning. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very big question. Um, I don't know what the biggest thing is, but th there is one thing that's been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, that you know we've made a little bit of progress on, but I think it remains a, a quite a quite a mystery, which is that you know we uh, we have algorithms at this point that can learn you know physically complex manipulation skills, things like that, but. It, in a lot of ways, when we observe what these algorithms do, you know, reinforcement learning algorithms, imitation learning algorithms, they don't look the way that human learning looks. Like if you put a person in front of some weird contraption and ask them to figure out how to do something with it, um, yeah, they're going to try like random different things. Um, they're going to do some amount of trial and error, but it just doesn't look the same as what a reinforcement learning algorithm does. And I think that's because humans approach problems um, with a great deal of um, kind of priors built up from their past experience. And we can throw lots of data and lots of experience at robotic systems too, but we haven't quite, I think, nailed the question of how to get them to use it effectively, how to uh, get them to use it, not just to figure out, uh, you know, generalizable visual features or things like that, but how to figure out, uh, you know, the, the, the right priors for acquiring new skills. That you know, when you're when you're asked to unlock a door with a funny door handle, you know that whatever you're supposed to be doing involves like fiddling with that door and not you know waving your arm in the air in random ways. So these are very common sense, seemingly obvious things to us, but they're surprisingly difficult to shoehorn into uh, learning-based algorithms. How to utilize diverse prior experience to constrain the process of acquiring new skills. Mm -hmm. And do you think that when it comes to continual learning, when we speak about this? Yeah, robotics. How do you see? Yeah, if you can tell more about the how we can design machine learn from each other as well, and also the control learning. And if we speak about human, they have this lifespan. So when it comes to robotics, if we speak about yeah in the future, how do you have this kind of control learning? How do you see that? Yeah, well, yeah. So I, so I think in many ways that is um, you know uh, very much on on the track to the right problem formulation. Um, I think that the you know, the problems we start to encounter there, you know, well, it's not just formulating the, um, the process, you know, I, I think, I think it makes sense that, that the process ought to be something like, a, you know, a continual lifelong learning process, but we start running into questions like, uh, you know, what's the right representation to use? Like, what should you, you have, you have all this prior experience of past tasks, what should you distill them into? How do you appropriately represent Prior, not, prior experience in a learned model so that it can be uh, maximally useful for acquiring downstream skills. There are a few starting points. We have things like meta-learning algorithms, we have Bayesian uh, deep learning methods, things like that. So they all, they all serve as good starting points, uh, but I think that there are also a lot of question marks there. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to reinforcement learning, because I think there's a paper published today about that maybe reinforcement learning is enough for maybe the level of intelligence we I don't know how, how do you see that um, this paper, for example, or maybe in general from some of your work, do you think reinforcement learning is enough uh, when it comes to reaching the level of intelligence, maybe equivalent to human as well? It's a little difficult to answer that question because um, 
um, asking whether reinforcement learning is enough is a little bit like asking whether optimization is enough. Like, uh, you know, almost any rational decision-making problem can be formulated as a reinforcement learning problem, but that doesn't mean that reinforcement learning methods can necessarily solve that problem. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a, it's a stretch to say that, uh, you know, whatever behavior we want a machine to do, so long as that behavior is rational, we can write down an optimization problem that describes what we want. The, prob the, the challenge usually is in solving that optimization problem or, you know, very closely related to that, formulating in a way that is amenable to being solved. So if, if, if I want a robot that, um, you know, if I'm a company and I'm manufacturing a home robot that is going to clean people's homes, I could write down an objective that says maximize the profit that my company makes. Now, that is a well-defined optimization problem. The robots will act in a way so as to maximize profit. The question, the, the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, that optimization problem is intractable. The robots have no idea what they should be doing to maximize the profit my company will make next year or something. So they, so we need to... Uh, formulate problems that are a little more tractable and design algorithms that can solve them. So I, I think that, you know, reinforcement learning, uh, the problem statement probably is enough simply because it's so general, but that's not a big accomplishment because it's, it's easy enough to design a problem statement that's so general as to be unsolvable. Right. So when it comes to designing the robots at the open-ended environment or as in you try to do, what it could be still we have to push for or maybe the area do you believe that that's what we have to maybe focus on or give more, much more attention? I don't know. How do you see that area? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think that one aspect uh, of robotics that, in my opinion, doesn't get enough attention, but it's, it's something that we, we've been focusing a little bit on, but I think it's something that needs a lot more work, is the question of uh, fully autonomous learning. And this might seem like a silly thing to say, like, well, learning, of course, it's autonomous. But um, the fact is that right now, uh, it takes uh, quite a bit of human effort to have uh, learning algorithms actually run on real robots. Things like you know, setting up the environment so that uh, the robot can uh, try a skill multiple times, uh, instrumenting the environment to define reward functions, objective functions, things like that, providing demonstrations that that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, imagine a... Uh, a future where you uh, buy a robot, maybe it's going to be a robot in your home whose job will be to, I don't know, clean your bathroom. And you turn on that robot, and initially it has some kind of prior, it knows roughly what to, what to do, but it doesn't really uh, perform successful tasks in your particular home. But then after a few days, it gets better and better at that, right? Okay, we need the learning algorithms, but we also need the machinery so that when it like messes something up, it can go back in and put things back the way they were, try again, things like that, and do that without you having to do a lot of work. So that, that degree of autonomy, the physical aspects of it, you know, resetting the environment to try again, figuring out whether you succeed or not, all those things, it, it's tempting to view them as kind of the, um, the engineering and infrastructure that goes around a learning algorithm. But when we really get down into it, it turns out there are a lot of really deep scientific questions there. Um, as an example, uh, one of the things that we uh, explored recently is this question of whether multitask learning can be more autonomous than single task learning. Now, this might at first seem like a strange uh, idea because, well, multitask learning ought to be just harder than single task learning. If you want a robot to learn many things, that ought to be much more difficult than having to le learn to do one thing. Uh, but if those many things are somehow interconnected with each other, uh, you can learn those many things together more aut autonomously than you could learn a single thing. So if you're learning to make a cup of coffee, well, you have a skill to put the co coffee cup into the coffee machine and push the button but maybe you spill the coffee. Well, if you have another task that you're learning, which is to clean up the spill, now you can use that as an opportunity to practice that other skill. So if you have enough skills such that they link up into a closed uh, kind of a, a group, uh, then you can learn all of them automatically without having to have like people come in there and fix things up. Um, so it turns out that we can actually make the problem harder, <laughs> seemingly, but at the same time make it more autonomous. So I think exploring those kinds of questions is actually really interesting. And it may be one of the big uh, uh, bottlenecks on the way to fully autonomous learning-based systems because we know from uh, our past uh, experience in the world of supervised machine learning, things like computer vision, speech, NLP, that if we get large amounts of data and high-capacity models, these things tend to work really well. But the big obstacle to having large amounts of data and high-capacity models in robotics is that these robotic experiments are extremely onerous. They take a lot of human effort. So if they can be fully automated, 
if basically the robot can work harder than the human does, then we can leverage the benefits of large data sets and high capacity models in robotics. Great. So when it comes to strategies you, you, you think may be um, rich or maybe you think maybe it's more, more reliable. For example, you speak about offline reinforcement learning versus online one or maybe model-based or model-free. If you can tell more about maybe the trade-off that you believe that it's okay to have this trade-off and still have a reliable result. I don't know if, if you can elaborate more about that. Yeah. So for me, I, one of the big... Uh, I would say kind of overriding considerations in building effective robotic learning systems is that they need to be able to utilize large and diverse sources of data. Uh, we know this is critical for learning-based systems to get generalization and robustness. Uh, you know, and people have spent a, a very long time studying how uh, learned models in low data regimes can be effective and robust, and it is extremely hard. Whereas when you have a large data regime, which is basically the norm now in all supervised learning systems, it seems to be a lot more straightforward. So that means that if we want robotic learning systems to work, they need to be able to train on large and diverse sources of data. In reinforcement learning, the only way I can see to do that right now is with offline reinforcement learning algorithms. Now, offline reinforcement learning doesn't mean uh, that we're going to exclusively use offline data. Rather, it means that we're going to have methods that are capable of utilizing large amounts of offline data. Now, in practice, in order to fully perfect, uh, you know, uh, behavioral skills, these robots might actually go out and perform some amount of additional online training in a very particular narrow environment to really perfect their behavior. But their robustness and generalization is going to come from large amounts of diverse offline data. Because collecting large amounts of diverse data online means, like, repeatedly revisiting all those different diverse settings, and I think that's going to be extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. So when it comes to resilience or redundancy, when it, maybe in the designing of the network or maybe the robot itself, how do you see the concept of resilience or redundancy in the design of the network? Do you think it's sufficient or do you think we have to look for something beyond the structure we have already? Yeah. Um, that's a very difficult uh, problem. Uh, so, you know, in my group, we've, we've been doing some work also in, in domains that, that uh, where such things are, are, are critical, domains like autonomous flight, autonomous driving. Uh, I'm, we don't have a solution yet, but my hunch is that uh, longer term, we'll find that the methods that are the most resilient and the most robust are the methods that effectively use learning and generalize effectively. It's very tempting to think about resilience and robustness as the problem of imposing hand design constraints on learning-based systems. I don't think that approach is going to work because I don't think we're smart enough to come up with the right constraints, especially when we have a learning-enabled system that has to deal with rich and complex sensory perception. So uh, it may be possible to write down a constraint in terms of well-defined predicates, like I don't want my autonomous car to get within you know, 50 centimeters of a human pedestrian. The problem is that the autonomous car has to operate on sensory inputs, and I can't define a constraint like that in terms of LiDAR point clouds or camera pixels. So that means that somewhere in there, there's going to be a learning-based system mediating this whole interaction, and uh, the hand-designed constraints are not going to apply to the lowest level of the embodiment. So that means we can't, we can't rely on hand-designed constraints. We have to rely on learning systems that are robust to distributional shift, that generalize effectively, um, and we need better theory to understand the behavior of these learning-based systems. But I don't think we're going to solve the problem by um, you know, shoehorning uh, kind of constrained optimization methods from other areas that make strong assumptions about uh, knowledge of the state. I do think there's more we could do, however, and I think that the solutions will come from uh, the, uh, those fields of machine learning that study uh, robustness, resilience, and adaptation, and that is a very active area of research, you know, things like distributionally robust optimization, uh, models that adapt at test time to distribution shift, domain adaptation, things like that. Uh, and I do think that those areas are very much worth pursuing and they will eventually contribute to more resilient uh, autonomous robots. Before we go on to the audience question, I have one question. Do you have any uh, experiences in your work, I don't know, counterintuitive result? Because sometimes we believe, um, maybe it's been on the model simulation, sometimes we get certain result, but when we deploy it, sometimes it's counterintuitive and there's something, yeah, I don't know if you have something like that. Yeah. 
I mean, yes, uh, that happens all the time. And uh, certainly uh, our, our best ideas often don't, don't survive uh, first contact with a robot. Uh, but I, I'm trying to think of a, of a good example in this case. One pretty intriguing result that we actually, uh, that we figured out recently, this is actually not something we've even released yet, but we'll probably release the paper in a few days, is we've been um, thinking a lot about how generalization in reinforcement learning compares to generalization in supervised learning. And, um, you know, there, there have been a number of papers uh, over the last few years that showed kind of somewhat anecdotally uh, experimental results that suggest maybe generalization is kind of harder in RL in some way than it is in supervised learning, but no one really had an explanation as to why. Uh, and also, you know, they're very difficult to compare because they're just different problem statements. So uh, my thinking about on this topic was always that, well, maybe there's kind of nothing there. Like, you know, generalization is what you get from lots of data, so just don't worry about it. Train your RL system on more experience and it'll all be fine. Um, but we actually figured out recently, and this is some more theoretical work that we'll hopefully release in a few weeks, uh, that there's actually fundamental reasons to believe that generalization in RL is harder than generalization in supervised learning because RL systems need to address epistemic uncertainty differently. Essentially, uh, briefly, the problem comes down to the fact that in a supervised learning system, if you uh, do well on the training set and you don't overfit, then you will do well on uh, test points from the same distribution. In reinforcement learning, we can formulate a similar kind of assumption. You know, let's say you have a robot that learns to grasp, uh, you know, 100 different objects, and now it's going to try to generalize to new objects. It turns out that you can set up these reinforcement learning problems in a way that you can do arbitrarily well in the training set, not overfit, and still do arbitrarily poorly on the test set. And we can actually prove this in theory, uh, that this problem exists, and in practice we actually see it showing up. Uh, and to me, that was very surprising because I always thought, well, you know, it's just statistics like you have your training set, you have your test set, how's the RL problem different? But it turns out it is different. And deep down, the reason it's different is because in RL, your, um, your payoff is much more complex. So in RL, you can mess up in different ways that have different costs, uh, and therefore you need to place a different value in your epistemic uncertainty. Um, so we'll release this work in a few weeks, but to me, this was a pretty surprising result because I, I always thought, well, we... we don't need to worry about this stuff in RL anymore so than we worry about it in supervised learning, and it turns out that's not the case. Appreciate that. So you wrote this question. Um, um, there's a question from someone you I asked. Uh, in 2017, Alex Erpen from Google wrote a blog post called Deep Reinforcement Learning Doesn't Work Yet. And uh, this post showed the multiple weakness of the field, claiming that it's, it's, it's a difficult field to deal with and for now. And it's promising, but nothing more than uh, that. In general, I would like to hear uh, your opinion about whether do you think DRL works now in 2021 and whether he is optimistic about it. Well, uh, it certainly works now. I mean, like, you know, uh, X, uh, the, the Google X, uh, the Alphabet company, they're building a product around DeepRL that's, that's already a public uh, thing. It's called the Everyday Robot Project. Um, so it works well enough for a, a giant, uh, you know, multi-billion-dollar company to build a product around it. Um, but maybe the, the the more nuanced answer I would give is this: that I don't think DeepRL is a diff any different from any other technology in this regard. There is always a uh, kind of a maturation process. So if we rewind back to like 2008, we would say, well, deep learning doesn't work, right? Deep learning is this funny thing that some uh, people uh, at the University of Toronto do to train classifiers on MNIST digits. But, uh, you know, skip forward a few years and all of a sudden deep learning is taking over the field of computer vision to the point where just a few years after that, it would be impossible to publish a paper in CVPR if it doesn't have deep networks in it. So in, any technology has to go through uh, a process of maturation and, and during that process, a few things happen. Of course, we develop uh, a better understanding, we develop better theory, we develop better algorithms, but the other thing that we develop is better workflows better uh, engineering standards and practices that make seemingly brittle and fiddly technologies much more reliable to use. Uh, and, and I think this could be said for pretty much any technology. Any technology at one point was something that required uh, a lot of guesswork and, and a lot of fiddling until we fiddled enough to the point where we understand the parameters under which things work, and then it seems like it's reliable. So, uh, you know, we could say that, uh, you know, any... Uh, 
any reasonably competent programmer could, you know, download PyTorch or TensorFlow and get a continent uh, up and running uh, within some fairly limited amount of time. But that's because the standard packages already have a lot of those delicate decisions kind of made in, in a reasonable way. Uh, it's, it's not like we've figured out some really, really deep, profound truths there that we didn't know in like 2008 or 2009. We've just got a few of the details right to the point where we don't have to worry about them as much. And I think the same thing will happen uh, in DeepRL. And, and I don't think it's going to be some sort of like, uh, you know, tectonic shift where all of a sudden just everything clicks. I think it's just going to be the same thing as in any other field of science, gradual progress until things are uh, kind of uh, much more mature. I have questions for Mark. Can you give your opinion about multi-agent reinforcement learning? Um, I don't think I have a particularly sophisticated opinion in regard to it. I mean, it's uh, there are domains where multi-agent reinforcement learning is uh, is important because we want to control multiple agents. I mean, there are um, you know there are certainly deep and unique algorithmic questions. A lot of them centered around the fact that we have to do decentralized decision-making and have some sort of consensus process. I think there are also a lot of questions that are shared in common with all other kinds of deep reinforcement learning, you know, how to design algorithms that are more efficient, more stable, and more reliable. Uh, and probably those advances are going to uh, facilitate more effective multi-agent learning as well. Mm -hmm. I have a question also from Ivan. He asked us about, with soft robots, there are so many sensors touch, for example, and so many actuator um, more than few joints. How do you imagine something like that could be controlled by training? Uh, for example, random exfiltration will just produce poor policies and no amount of simulation will give you a remotely good trajectory, as it seems. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that's actually one of the strengths of learning-based uh, methods. So it's, um, you know, there's a spectrum of problems from model from problems that are easy to characterize to problems that are hard to characterize. So free space motion of a rigid robot is, you know, it's basically, it's impossible to beat a good model-based controller for that. Like, you know, the, you, you can do learning, reinforcement learning can control a rigid robot in free space, but it's kind of pointless. Like you just, you're not gonna do any better. Uh, on the other extreme, we get to really messy things where like you said, there's a mess of different sensors that we haven't characterized or calibrated properly. There are actuators that have complex nonlinear effects. There's deformation, etc. And in those settings, I think learning is going to do great because to the learning algorithm, that problem looks exactly the same as the problem with the, the rigid robot in free space, whereas to a model-based algorithm, it looks completely different. So the big power of these learning-based methods is that they make significantly fewer assumptions, and therefore the same method that works on the well-characterized system is likely to work exactly the same way on the poorly characterized system. Um, we, we've experimented a bit with reinforcement learning algorithms for, for soft robots a few years ago. My, my student Abhishek uh, Gupta had a, a collaboration with uh, Clemens uh, Eppner, who was uh, at the time a student at TU Berlin, where Clemens had brought his uh, uh, soft hand that he developed uh, with Professor Oliver Brock at TU Berlin, and then him and Abhishek figured out how to control it with reinforcement learning. Uh, Abhishek applied an algorithm that he had previously developed for, um, for the PR2 robot, which is a rigid robot, um, but it basically worked on the, on the deformable hand. It was a, a pneumatic-driven hand, pretty much the same way. Um, so, I, I, so I think that I'm actually very optimistic about the promise of learning-based methods, particularly in those settings where you have weird and messy actuators and sensors. And I think it's also a really powerful tool potentially for prototyping actuators and sensors, because if you have a very general learning algorithm that you can throw at whatever robot you design, you don't have to worry so much about control. You just mess with your hardware, then run the, R the RL algorithm on it and see what it does. And I think that's actually potentially a really promising technology. That's a good point, yeah. And the last question from John, he asks, is many researcher um, Andy Jones and John uh, um, uh, Solomon Swinter have written a blog post on common practices uh, to debug uh, deep uh, reinforcement learning, which is a difficult matter. It would be great if you could give more tips based on your solo expertise. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, to sort of describe this briefly, I, th I think a lot of these are going to sound exactly the same as the tips we would give for any other kind of machine learning problem. But, um, you know, usually the way that we go about uh, addressing a, kind of a big robotic learning problem in my group is we first set up a small problem, uh, a medium problem, and then a big problem. So the small problem should be basically something that verifies the correctness of your implementation. The medium problem is something that has the qualitative properties of the final problem you want to solve, uh, but is, uh, you know, in, in simulation, 
efficient and fast to run and easy to prototype with. And then the, the big final problem is the one that you actually want to solve. So the big final problem might be you actually run a real physical robotic system to do like real world training. The medium problem is something simulated that is not necessarily high fidelity, but has many of the same challenges as the real thing. And then the small problem is basically like a unit test to make sure you coded up your algorithm correctly. So you first get the small problem to work that basically verifies your implementation is correct. Then you get the medium problem to work because you can iterate quickly. And that one verifies that your implementation can actually solve the problem you want to solve. And then you get it working on, on the real hardware. And that kind of pipeline seems to work pretty well. Um, I think, you know, uh, looking forward a little bit more, I would say that workflows in general are one of the things that we don't pay enough attention to in the formal kind of academic study of reinforcement learning. And I do think that we need more effort around defining effective workflows that are not just uh, what I just said, not just sort of community lore, but actual formalized practice. Um, so as an example, in supervised learning, we almost don't think about this, but the training validation set split is a workflow. It's something that somebody came up with. There are, you know, there's statistics behind it that say that it's like valid. And it's been the work, the, the workhorse of supervised learning research and supervised learning practice for the longest time. Like without it, it would be unthinkable how to get uh, a supervised learning system off the ground. So what's the equivalent for that in reinforcement learning? What's the equivalent for that in robotic learning? Um, we have some ideas, some, you know, ad hoc, uh, sort of uh, heuristics, but I think we, we need a, a, a bit more research to formalize that, and that would actually go a long way towards making these tools um, broadly applicable. Right. Thank you about that simulation to reality gap. Um, what still may be something you believe still may be hard maybe to capture in simulation? Maybe you think that to achieve high fidelity simulation or to have the same exact performance we expect when it comes to deploying robots in reality. So I don't know what could be aspect you believe is still missing we have to consider people you can't simulate people very well because simulating people is just as hard as uh, creating intelligent machines but uh, maybe more seriously i mean uh, i know a lot of folks who work on simulation who build simulators for a living actually when i was uh, an undergraduate uh, i spent uh, a little bit of time uh, working in a lab uh, with professor ron fedko who works on physics simulation and they can simulate a lot of different physical phenomena very realistically. You know, these are you know the kind of simulators that are used for film, for um, uh, you know high quality engineering applications. It's possible to simulate a lot of stuff uh, if we're willing to put a bit of human effort behind it and get things set up properly. So, with the exception of things like human brains, I don't doubt our ability to build high fidelity simulators. However. Uh, it's perhaps instructive to think about why is it that in other areas where machine learning has been successful, areas like computer vision, speech recognition, things like that, simulation is usually not the go-to tool. You know, we could try to solve computer vision problems by using state-of-the-art graphics uh, tools, uh, generate lots of images, and build perception systems that way. And people have tried to do that. But across the board, the most successful perception systems that are actually used in production are not built that way. They're built using real data. Um, it's not just because the simulation is not realistic. A lot of it is honestly because the real data is just easier. It's, it's easier to use, it's easier to get, and it's more representative of the real world. Uh, and I think that it's a, partly a quirk of our current uh, technology that this convenience doesn't seem to play out quite that way in uh, reinforcement learning and control, but, but I think it'll get there. And I think, you know, technologies like offline reinforcement learning will help get us there. So, you know, I, I think that if we really put our minds to it, I, I don't doubt that folks who work on simulation professionally can simulate just about everything short of the human brain. Uh, what I think is that it's just going to be more convenient not to in many cases. So I think one of the aspects also in machine learning community, and I think in academia in general, that's point about reproducible result. And there's a lot of discussion going on most often today about reproducibility and the publication. And how do you see you can manage that? I don't know how do you see this problem from, from your perspective in, the, in your field, or maybe also in general about reproducibility in the results. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I think robotics especially has always had a lot of difficulty with it because in robotics, we end up with these uh, you know, custom-built, hand-designed systems oftentimes that 
the particular laboratory setup I have is not the same as the one you have. I have a particular piece of sticky tape on the gripper of my robot that makes it work a lot better than someone else's or things like that. So it is an issue. Um, I think in robotics especially, another big part of that issue honestly has been cost. So part of why it's uh, difficult to standardize uh, around reproducible systems and part of why everyone has different hardware is because hardware is expensive. So if I bought my awesome uh, robot five years ago and I spent a great deal of money on it, I'm not going to just like go and buy another one simply so that I can reproduce someone else's algorithm. But I think these problems are solvable. I think increasingly the, the cost of high-end robots is going down, but also the need for high-end robots is going down. So as we get algorithms that are more capable of controlling uh, imprecise, uh, low-precision, uh, and low-cost robotic systems, it'll be easier for me to say, like, hey, I want to run your algorithm. I'll just get the same robot that you had. You know, it's like it's a few hundred dollars. Like, yeah, let's just get it for the sake of reproducing it. That's much easier to do than when the robot costs $200,000. Um, the other thing, and this is maybe a little bit more far-fetched that I think is potentially a promising thing is to think about robotic systems that are um, not uh, directly uh, owned and controlled by individual researchers, but that are a centralized resource, much like uh, compute servers. So I think the technology is not there yet, but I think we could imagine at some point in the future where uh, we could have uh, robots that are located in you know, at some facility, just like uh, compute servers are located in a server farm and you can log in and run stuff on the robot and then uh, different people can try running their thing on the same robot or across different kinds of robots and things like that. And we've seen some um, early uh, efforts in this direction. Uh, for example, there was an effort uh, out of uh, uh, Georgia Tech, I believe it was called the Robotarium. Uh, there was an effort from uh, Stefan Tillich's group at Brown called the Million Objects Challenge that all started to get at this point a little bit and I think we'll see more of that, and that's potentially really promising on a longer timeline. So I'm curious about maybe the biggest technological roadblocks do you believe that still we have when it comes to robotics, maybe? What is the technological roadblocks do you, do you believe we have? You mean for uh, applications or...? Yeah, maybe in the, what we develop, maybe still, if you have crazy idea, I don't know what kind of thought you have or capabilities you believe that robots should have, maybe... And you still believe that's a technological roadblock, maybe in terms of technology and also application as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, a lot of the, the 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 big roadblocks really come down to uh, generalization, come down to the ability of the system to uh, do something not just in one setting, not just with in, in one environment or with one set of objects, but in any setting that uh, it might find itself in in the real world, uh, and. You know, in a sense, if we imagine why, for example, the development of autonomous vehicles has proven to be such a long journey, a lot of it really does come down to the fact that uh, they, you know, autonomous vehicles, in contrast to uh, robots that are situated in more controlled environments, can find themselves in all sorts of weird situations. And once we have robotic manipulators in open world environments, the same issue will start to come up. Uh, so I think, to a large extent, kind of the the radius of deployment, you know, with the center point being at the factory and the and the far off point being in your home, that how far that robot can go will be determined by its ability to generalize. And that's a big part of why I think machine learning technologies are one of the pro most promising ways forward for robotics, because I, it most directly addresses exactly this question, the question of generalization. Mm -hmm. Good. So since it doesn't have your question, I don't know if you have any ideas do or aspiration when it comes to what we have in the community. I don't know what kind of thoughts do you have when you think about uh, what you want to achieve in the coming years. I don't know if we have any kind of thoughts. In, in, the, in the robotics research community? Yeah. Well, I think that um, one, one thing that we ought to do more of as a robotics research community is share more things. Um, and this comes back to also a little bit to the point about reproducibility, but it's not just about reproducibility. Like, you know, a, a really uh, ideal future for me is one where if you, if another researcher at a different university wants to run a robotics experiment, they don't start off by, you know, cooking up some kind of custom-built robot system, 
running a bunch of experiments with it, collecting training data and doing something like that. They start off loading up, you know, robot data set for kitchen tasks or something, initialize their system from that, and then run their experiment. And that kind of standardization has been extremely successful in other fields. For example, computer vision has prospered tremendously from having uh, standardization, not just in terms of evaluation, but in terms of kind of a starting point, uh, something that someone could load up and immediately get a system with some basic level of competence and then build from there. And that's something that's been very hard to get in robotics. Um, we actually had an early effort in this direction that was almost kind of a trial run of what it's like to collect a, a data set across multiple different research labs. This was called RoboNet. Uh, we uh, released it uh, about two years ago with, uh, it was a data set of manipulation data collected by researchers at UC Berkeley, Stanford, uh, Carnegie Mellon, and University of Pennsylvania. Um, now, it was a trial run. It ended up being not that useful, partly because just the behaviors that we had in the data set were not that interesting. But it was an interesting uh, experience in the sense that it taught us a lot about how to gather uh, data from multiple sources and format it in ways that could be used by different researchers in different places. And I think we ought to be doing a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, yeah. But I'm curious to ask you, as we know, research is so challenging. I don't know, do you have any moments, maybe sometimes, I don't doubt, moment when you, when you research or the direction you're going for, how you overcome this kind of feeling? If you have, I don't know, how, how do you encounter this feeling? Yeah. That's, a, that's a good question, yeah. Um, I mean, the answer is yes, of course. Uh, I think any, any scientist who is working on ambitious problems is, uh, if, they're, if they're realistic with themselves, they're going to have some doubts as to whether this is all like, uh, going to work out or if it's all a dead end. Uh, I, you know, something I would say, and this is particularly maybe a, a bit of advice for, uh, for students who are getting started, for uh, you know, junior researchers who are thinking like, you know, what the heck am I going to do in this field? Um, I think it's important to have um, big goals and, uh, and, and, and dreams and so on, but to also derive, learn how to derive satisfaction from working on the right problem, even if it's a little hard to tell whether you're making progress on that problem. Like, you know, the reality of science is that uh, most people working on tough scientific problems are not going to be the ones that make the big progress there. But if lots of people don't work on those problems, then nobody's going to make progress. So it might, it might sound a little bit like dark, but, you know, lots of people have to fail so that the field as a whole succeeds. Uh, and I think, you know, we as a community need to be kind of cognizant of that and, and celebrate not just the fact that someone got something right, but also that lots of other people tried and got it wrong. Because if lots of people didn't try, then probably no one would have gotten it right. Um, so, you know, a lot of it has to do with learning how to derive satisfaction from the process uh, and the satisfaction of knowing that you're working on important problems that are uh, advancing the field, even if you yourself are not uh, individually meeting with the kind of success that you had hoped for, uh, you know, in a given year or, 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 or month or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a very wise point. We have three questions left. Uh, first of all, do you think ego is important for you when you speak about ideas or maybe, I don't know, the community? Do you think ego is important for you? Well, not sure how to answer that question. I mean, I think to me the like things that uh, things that matter a lot is like is actually like seeing stuff work. <laughs> I'd like I'd like to see the robots actually work. Um, I'd like to be the one to do it. If someone else does it, I'm pretty happy with that too, though. Uh, so I don't know. I think that science ultimately has to be a a very cooperative community effort. I, I think there's there's a little bit of a of a um, a myth, and maybe this part of this is human nature around like the, the hero scientist. Like uh, you know, there's one 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 person who's just so smart and brilliant that they like figure everything out. But that's not really how science works. And every time in history where there was one brilliant person who figured something out, if you dig a little bit deeper. It's actually because they were kind of in the right place and the right time, surrounded by lots of other people that basically gave them the pieces. So that's not to understate the, the accomplishments of very smart and capable individuals. But science has always been a, a social endeavor. Um, certainly it is today, but I think it, it also was that way in, in the past, too. It's just that looking back on history, it tends to cast the, the success into much clearer focus and sort of blur away everything else. But that's not giving us a, a realistic picture. So we, we have to be comfortable with it being a social process and celebrate each other's successes. That's 
possible point, yeah. Yeah, the only book inspired you I've ever read. I don't know if you have a book you have ever read and was inspiring and stick to your mind. I can, I, I can give an answer, but it's going to sound a little bit naive. Um, this is not really a, so much about robotics, although uh, this is a this is by an author who has written a lot about robotics. So, I, uh, especially when I was younger, I was a big fan of the writings of uh, Isaac Asimov. I think that's probably going to come as no surprise to um, lots of people listening to this. But actually, the um, the stories uh, from Asimov that I actually found the most inspiring were not the ones about the robots, although those were really cool too. Uh, it was the um, the Foundation series, where you know, a lot of the premise, a lot of the theme behind those books uh, was uh, Asimov's idea that, you know, to, to kind of paraphrase, a sufficiently deep scientific understanding of how everything works can be used to make arbitrarily accurate predictions arbitrarily far into the future. Although, of course, a lot of the books then kind of turn this idea on its head and uh, bring up, you know, sort of unexpected, really weird events that just upend everything. But that really got me thinking that I found that to be very inspiring, this idea that if we just understand the universe well enough. We can make these like amazing superhuman predictions and 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 just like accomplish way more than an, an individual human mind could ever fathom. Um, you know, to me that you know, in many ways, that is also the promise of artificial intelligence. Um, and I think also those books provide an interesting cautionary tale about how that idea can also go horribly wrong sometimes. So we kind of need both the good and the bad. Right. And what could be the most important quality you have to maintain as a researcher? What's important quality you believe you have to maintain? <laughs> Humility, because if uh, uh, because otherwise. Uh, you know, if, if you don't maintain humility, then it will be imposed upon you by <laughs> some very unfortunate failures. Um, but also, um, I think I think there is a, a certain degree of kind of mental acrobatics uh, that a scientist needs to do because you have to be simultaneously very ambitious and also very comfortable with failure because you, you have to try big and ambitious things. But you have to also be okay with knowing that most of the time it's not going to succeed. Um, so it's a, I, I think some, pe some people are very good at having that mindset. Some people are less good. And uh, it takes, um, it, it, it's, it's unnatural, I think, for a person to have that mindset. Yeah, that's really a good point. Yeah. Lastly, maybe what is the advice was given to you was life-changing? I don't know if you received any advices, maybe the good ones that you believe was life-changing for you. <laughs> I can give one answer, but it's, uh, it's not going to be, uh, I'm afraid it's not going to be a particularly inspiring answer because it's a very nitty gritty technical point. But um, it does stand out in my mind because in, in my own career, I think this very small, very technical bit of advice actually ended up making a big difference. So this is maybe not quite what your question is getting at, but I'll tell the story anyway. I think, it, I think it's a neat story. So in um, 2015, I was a research scientist at Google and I was working on um, robotic learning for um, grasping. So we had this idea that we wanted to develop a learning-based grasping system that could practice grasping lots and lots of different objects. Uh, and because it could learn autonomously, it would acquire these generalizable skills and we could show that kind of you could actually have an RL system that generalizes broadly. And at the time, that was not something that had really existed. And we had a lot of trouble getting this thing to work. You know, we set up all the robots, they were doing their thing, we were training models. But they just didn't work as well as we wanted. So um, the, it was, it was uh, you know, myself, Peter Pastor, and Alex Krzyzewski were working on this, where Peter was doing a lot of the kind of robotics setup, Alex was doing a lot of the convnets, and I was kind of trying to put the pieces together. And when things weren't working so well, I kept uh, suggesting that, well, maybe we need to, like, scale back and simplify. You know, we just had gone to, like, Costco and bought, like, thousands of different objects, and it was a very difficult problem. So, well, you know, let's just simplify. Let's, like, pick up, I don't know, colored blocks or something and at least get that right. And I remember every time I would suggest this, uh, Alex would always tell me that, uh, no, just like, hold on, like, the system is going to be exactly the same with a simplified setup as it is now. That's not going to make a difference. Just like keep running and collect enough data, you know, go read the AlphaGo paper. They collected like 10 billion games of Go. You only gave me like a few hundred thousand trials. Just, just like keep going, be patient. And I remember thinking like, well, this guy, I mean, okay, Alex Krzyzewski, he knows something about contents, but he's not a roboticist. What, what does he know? But I, you know, I, I, I listened to him and I'm glad I did because it turns out that if I had just, you know, we, we just kind of kept 
kept going, didn't didn't mess it up, uh, and as he predicted, the thing eventually worked, right? Because the basic technology was essentially there. Um, that that uh, that taught me a valuable lesson, I think, in in terms of uh, um, you know so, sometimes you have to trust your instincts, and you also have to um, you know, uh, have an appreciation for the power of data-driven methods. But in my own career, uh, that turned out to be a good decision listening, listening to Alex because, uh, you know, in many ways, the, the system that we built and, uh, and the success of that system, you know, was part of what uh, enabled me to get the job that I have now and things like that. So that turned out to be, uh, you know, career-wise very beneficial. But uh, it's a very technical point. That's a really good one. I... I think that's uh, that's really good advice. I deeply appreciate hearing that. So I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for the audience listening to you. Um, if you have any final words you'd like to say. Um, nothing in particular, except maybe something I, w I would mention is that robotics research and, and robotic, robotic learning in particular, it's... Um, it's a very difficult field in the sense that it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of interdisciplinary expertise. And, uh, you know, something that I see oftentimes from students who get started in this area is that, you know, it's pretty easy to get discouraged because there's all this uh, progress that can be made with machine learning uh, technologies in other areas that seemingly comes at a lot less pain because, you know, there's like data sets already there, the models are already there. Um, but I think it's also something that is going to be very rewarding for people who work on it, for people who stick with it, because while machine learning, you know, it's coming back to that, to that point that, that you asked me about before regarding uh, Alex Serpon's blog post, the, the, the maturity of the field, like the very thing that makes uh, robotic learning less mature and harder to deal with is also the thing that makes it more promising as a research area, because this is where there's potentially a great deal of, of untapped potential and students who are starting their PhDs maybe now, you know, they're in a position where they could see these technologies really turn from academic exercises to things that are broadly used in the real world. So it's a more painful area to work in, but I think that uh, that also will come with its rewards, perhaps, uh, you know, very soon, perhaps in the span of somebody's PhD who's starting their degree right now. Thanks so much, Serge. I think that was very inspiring and very insightful. I deeply appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me.